0: Is everything good with me? No, I've only just got my voice back. Um, I'm still filming, and it's been a bit of a big week for us. Um, So I'm going to tell you about it very briefly. I'm not going to bore you. So Saturday, we went up to North by Northwich with the Charlatans, and we had two big live episodes to record the first one with and the legend Mr Dave Haslam talking about his fantastic book Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor and among all other stuff um, and that's going to be a great episode coming out soon and then we walked over the road to the Odeon Northwich big shout out to all the people who work at the Odeon Northwich because they were just fantastic and lovely because we were in screen 3 Because there was a Journeyman screening. But before that, we had the live episode of the podcast with Paddy Considine. And it was just brilliant. Um, I think everybody really loved it. I really loved it. Um, Yeah. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. But trust me, you're going to absolutely love it. And then we had to jump in the Two Shot Podmobile, which is... Griff's car, load up and leg it to Crew Train Station because we were going to London, we had to go back down to London for the British Podcast Awards we met our friend uh, Matt Ford who is a fantastic stand-up and he does a very good podcast called the Political Party Podcast you should check that out, we had a quick drink with him and then we all walked up the road to the Podcast Awards um And we won. We won Best Culture Podcast. And we were... I'm still blown over now. Blown over? Blown away. Overwhelmed. I don't know. You see, I can't even speak. Yeah, um, we were absolutely thrilled. Uh, We couldn't believe it. You know, this podcast hasn't been going even a year yet. So to be recognised is a a huge honour... And we just want to shout out to you because you're talking about it. You're telling other people about it and it, 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 you know, it's catching fire. Um, So we're absolutely made up and thank you so much for all the lovely messages that you sent us on social media. Um, We're just thrilled. We're just, yeah, we're just thrilled. I'm I'm not going to speak anymore. I'm sounding ridiculous. So if you're listening to this on Thursday, Thursday, Thursday night, we are at Bath Festivals doing another live podcast. Why do I do this to myself? I'm I'm filming at the moment in London and I've got to go to Bath. Um, but I love it. Look, I wouldn't change it for the world and I'm not moaning because Thursday night, we are going to sit down with the writers, creators and stars of the BAFTA winning absolutely bloody brilliant show this country Charlie and Daisy May Cooper and I couldn't be more excited I've been a massive fan of both of theirs since it started Um, and we're going to see what happens who knows what's going to happen we are going to be at the Waterstones in Bath from 7 if you've got tickets get there for about 10 to if you haven't got tickets maybe try your luck see if there's one going spare it's going to be a great night Oh, I'm boring myself. Let's get down to it. This is episode 44 of the Two Shot Podcast with the, frankly, quite brilliant Mira Sayal. I shall see you at the end if I have a voice left. I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. <laughs> I've never been to Wolverhampton, even though I live actually not too far away from there. Do you? Well, I live in Gloucestershire, so I suppose yeah. I suppose I'm an hour f- from Birmingham, and then I'm not far, am I? Nice. Can to go far.
1: and have a look. Really? I've been to Wolverhampton, but I've never been to me. <laughs> it's a great song, that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about growing up. We was it, we, cause you were born in Wolverhampton, weren't you?
1: I was born in New Cross Hospital, Wolverhampton, very famous. Um. Enoch Powell's constituency. Very ironic. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: then my mum and dad lived in a boarding house for my first year, which I don't remember. Apparently I slept in a drawer, which I think is very exotic. And then, That's very cool. It's very cool. And then um, they moved to a mining village, um, sort of between Cannock and Wolverhampton, very rural. So I, grew, I was a country girl, I grew up in a black country mining village. Did you? Yeah, it's great.
0: So it's your mum and dad, it's you, mm-hmm. it's...
1: And I have a younger brother.
0: Younger brother? How, what's the age difference between you and your brother? Seven years. Seven years? Yeah. You got me a brother?
1: Yeah, I adore him. He's really, really cool. He was like my little doll when he was younger.
0: Was he? Yeah. Did it's, you dress him up? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he loved <laughs> you. Yeah.
1: I show him some of the pictures now and he's horrified. Look, here's you in that little
0: that little yellow fluffy hat that makes you look
1: like a chicken. I loved that.
0: <laughs> did you like the countryside?
1: I th- I think I lucked out actually. Um When I talk about my rural, working-class, very white childhood, the first thing people go is, oh, God, it must have been really tough. And you go, you know what, around it, yes, sometimes, obviously. It was, you know, the West Midlands in the 70s. But what I did have was complete freedom in a way that all the other Asian kids I knew, uh, like kids like me, first-generation immigrants born here, of immigrant parents... They were all in the Asian areas, so they were policed in a way that I wasn't.
0: Like in the cities, yeah.
1: Because you, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a sort of natural instinct of any immigrant group when they first arrive is to find you, find, find your, your other, people, find stick your together. tribe, yeah. f- set up your shops so where you can buy your food, the places where you worship, stick together. You know, because you feel unsafe. You've made the m- most epic upheaval of yeah. your life, um, and you want to be where. Is familiar. My parents were really unusual. They went right away from that. Consequently, I grew up um, just being a country wench. Really, I would leave the house, sort of, especially on weekends, when sort of after breakfast, and my mum would literally have to come and shout for me in the fields. And that that was it. I, you know, so you rode were, my bike, bikes. You,
0: you were the black country highday. Eh?
1: I was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I loved it. And it actually. I don't know, it was Wordsworth that said, wasn't it, that being around nature forms your spiritual landscape. You know, if you're surrounded by beauty and magnificence, that's how your heart will develop. And I feel that the endless horizons of my childhood just gave me this big kind of vision. I didn't see my world as small. I saw it as huge, because that's what I saw. I saw horizons and trees and fields and sky. And I used to sit on the swing and swing... You know, we used to go so high, we almost used to go over the bar. And I could see beyond the fields, and I'd always think, ah, the world's bigger than this. What's there? What's over there? I want to go
0: there. God, that's very telling, you know, tracing that back to to your career now, Mm. isn't it? Yeah. Even then, the creativity, your mind was going and thinking about the bigger picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, in fact, it's it's a bit of a gift, actually, I think, to be... A kid with two cultures or between two cultures or however you want to put that, I always consider myself blessed with biculturalism because not fitting in somewhere and not belonging anywhere is essential for your artistic third eye. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling when you're going through something really emotional, you've just had a bereavement or there's something terrible happening. For artists, there's a bit of you that's standing outside it going, oh, I must remember that emotion when I have to do a scene like that. I must remember that line that I just said, if I ever have to write a scene like that. Yeah. You're always slightly outside things, trying to see the bigger picture of what this means. Well, you think about that just like,
0: you know, we're in London now recording this, but if you're, you're walking through the bustling streets of Soho, oh, and you see a couple mm. having some sort of argument, and you, because we, we watch, and yeah, we, we take, magpies. and we steal, yeah, or yeah. Yeah, we learn... What's going on there? And then you yeah. start to create their, their backstory Back and what's going Imagine on with what, them.
1: Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's part of the pleasure of, of I think, being creative. Yeah. is that You always want to know, firstly, what is the story? And secondly, what does that story mean? And so, you know, a lot of people are not forced to ask those questions in their life. Why am I here? Where do I belong? What do I want? If you're a kid growing up like I did, you're asked it nearly every day. <laughs> What are you doing here? Why are you here? Why don't you go back to where you came from? So, actually, you need to know where you've come from. You need spiritual awakening and you need political awakening to actually go, I know why I'm here. History yeah. brought me here. Colonialism brought me here. Yeah. And I know where I want to go, I think, because you
0: keep asking me who I am.
1: I'm going to find out.
0: Yeah. And what initially taught your mum and dad there? Was it work? Yeah. My, yeah,
1: my dad actually was... Um, offered uh, a postgraduate place here um in philosophy which of course is a very useful subject for a newly arrived immigrant everybody wants an indian philosopher <laughs> go and drive the bloody bus what are you talking about um so strangely he found that not very useful in his new life so he ended up um it's so bizarre he an artistic creative man became an accountant i think he hated every single day of his life he really here. yeah because he <clears throat> you know that's what first-generation immigrants do. You go, am I going to feed my family?
0: Exactly, he was a provider. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. But in his spare time, he sang and he wrote poetry, and I'm sure that's where all that came from. So he came over to study and then quickly knew he couldn't survive on a student grant and had just married my mum and wanted to bring her over because I wanted to be together. And mum came here to teach and was invited by the British government, actually, as she reminds me. At that point in India in the early 60s, um, the British government were very actively recruiting uh, skills from overseas. So there were notices in the newspaper and she went to a hotel where they said, we'll we'll give you a voucher, we're so happy to have you, you're a graduate, please come over and, and teach in our schools. And of course that's how many of the NHS workers came over by invitation. Sort of important to remind people of that. I think it is extremely <laughs> important. Um, so that's how they both ended up.
0: And forgive me if I'm wrong, Is that, was that from New Delhi? Yes, from yes, New Delhi, yeah, yeah.
1: They'd been married a year or so and they were a bad combination of sort of poor and talented. So they knew they wouldn't get very far, they didn't have rich parents that could get them into this, that and the other place. And in their eyes, Britain was a meritocracy. It was where it didn't matter who you were, if you worked hard, you could make something of yourself.
0: Yeah. I think that's so brave, the move to the countryside, with you and your yeah, brother. I'm yeah. kind of fascinated by that.
1: It's really fascinating. But for my mum was a, a village girl. She grew up in a village in Punjab from a Sikh family, and they were right. landowners. And so she'd grown up literally, you know, pulling stuff off the trees on the way to school to eat or taking her granddad's mug down to uh, literally under the goat's udder. You go, go and get me some milk, and she go and go and squeeze it and take it back. Really, really rural, and you know, just ate amazing food all the time. In her life, was very simple and happy. And
0: kind of romantic. That was one of those things. Yeah. Those things kind of get me.
1: Yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't talk about. But we have to shit in the hole because that just spoils it, doesn't it? But yes, don't yeah, really spoils it. But um she, you know, you can imagine the homesickness that she felt coming to Britain.
0: I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. And And especially, uh, you know, in their first year of marriage,
1: yeah, yeah. And Britain in the sixties, you know, no Irish blacks and dogs in a boarding house. Yeah, all that that
0: shit to deal with as well.
1: So she was massively homesick, and the only thing that made her feel better was to be around nature because it reminded her of home. And so when this miner's tithe cottage, as it was, came up in this little village, and all their friends thought they were mad. Come to Wolverhampton. There's a you know you can buy your masala on the street corner. What's (laughs) the matter with you going there? But my mum was like, no, I want to see the sky and the trees and smell the earth, and that's the only thing that's going to keep me happy. So that's how we ended up there.
0: That's incredibly strong, your mum. Yeah, she I is. I think it is.
1: She's very strong. Spine of steel. Do
0: you know you were saying before, and it, you, you, you were in a way you were generalising because you weren't being specific, that people would say, what are you doing here? Mm. Where, where are you from? What? yeah. Tell me about school. and um, Did you encounter pre- prejudice like that at school?
1: Yeah, I think all of us did. I think all of that generation did in some form or the other. I never got it from the people we lived cheek by jowl with in the village because... They
0: they're... were quite accepting.
1: Well, yeah, I think their criteria was, are you a good villager or a bad villager? That's all they cared about. And, and you cause... were the former. And we were all on the bottom of the social heap together, you know. And actually... It's such a shame that the sort of constant demonization of the white working class that's gone on over the last 20 30 years because actually my memories of white working class were very warm, welcoming, hard working, generous community. people and a total community literally everyone would watch each other's kids because there was a park. It's all those sort of cottages encircled a, a big dirt yard where people would part their cars, work on their cars, and the washing lines were up. And some of the kids were playing. Then, literally next to it was a park, and beyond that was the fields. And that was our playground. And you would look look out for each other's kids. Now, when people came up from the local estate to use the park, or when I ventured out towards you know this side or that side, yes, it will be a different story because I stood out like a sore thumb.
0: Yeah. And you could feel that even. At your oh, and age. you got called it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Daily. I mean, could, could be daily. You, you just learn to, you learned you learn to toughen up. You know, because I sort of learned early on. I thought if I look like a victim,
0: you're going to be treated like one. Yeah. yeah. So. Did you learn to sort of? block out things like that because the, the you know the hurtful name calling and things like that you would have had at that time
1: yeah it, I it, I always went on the circumstances if there's a gang of 10 of them and just you head down head down walk on you know swallow the anger put it in your work and yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, smaller groups than that one-to-one yeah, I'd always take them on I was a bit scrappy well, yeah. I was a bit scrappy.
0: Fierce mirror.
1: <laughs> I was. It's not, it's not a side of myself I'm always proud of, but I think it served me quite well in my life. I'm not saying you start with your fists, but I do think you have to um, really be able to stand your corner, you know, verbally
0: and... Artic- and be articulate. Absolutely. Someone said that to me the other day. If you're going to go into an argument, be articulate. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a really good bit of advice, because sometimes I, 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 my brain doesn't connect with my mouth. I, and I just kind of mumble, and I just have to get it all out. It's a little cloud of anger. You
1: just reminded me of one of my favourite scenes from Father Ted, where he's, he's telling off the Randy Milkman. I don't know if you remember oh, that the, episode. Oh, my
0: God, it's a great episode. Where, where the speed episode. He's saying,
1: you know, you, you, you've impregnated off the women on the island, and the milkman says, you're not actually advocating contraception, are you, Father? <laughs> And Ted just stands there and goes there, but feck off! <laughs> <laughs> and I go, yeah, I get, I, I, yeah, I've been in the feck off position sometimes. Don't we all have? I, we, yeah, but you know, you, it's much better that you, you, you try and find. I suppose that's where humour came in. Actually, now I think about it, I mean that it, people don't want to hit the person is making them laugh.
0: No, especially it, if that. <laughs> Uh, there's other people around that circle who are all laughing. Yeah, yeah. At the other person, uh,
1: exactly. It's a really powerful and weapon. The balance
0: just tips.
1: Absolutely. And
0: then we feel strong because yeah. we found that scent, that that humour. Uh, yeah. And did that come quite easy to you at school?
1: Yeah, I think I was. I mean, I grew up in a family where we. You know, had a lot of laughs. My mum and dad were very sociable. I mean, all their friends were Punjabi, but you know, they'd, they'd all pile into each other's houses on the weekend. and We'd have these music parties, and there'd be a lot of banter and a lot of a lot of laughter, actually, and and a lot of verbals. And we were all encouraged to do our little party pieces, so you know, that's where the performance started. I'd I'd sing some Hindi songs with my dad, or he was playing the harmonium, and then I'd, I'd do my songs on the guitar, like "Paper Roses" by Marie Osmond. That was a favourite. <laughs> Um, wow, the aunties. Um, <laughs> she'll never go anywhere. i never go anywhere. Um, so, yeah, so the performance thing started early, but I think the, the love of words and the banter and actually seeing how positive a force humour was for that generation going through a lot that they didn't tell us about, um, but we would find out about later, that seeing them sort of shrug off all of their cares and their work of their clothes and seeing the people they used to be. Yeah. And the people... And the dreams, some some of them were the dreams they'd left behind, you know, the poets and the writers and... ..the songwriters and, you know, bringing artistic skills with them that they couldn't use in England because they weren't valuable and nobody wanted to hear them. But to see them giving vent to that
0: was really beautiful. And, and ins- it, I bet it was inspiring as well. Yeah,
1: and also made me understand all the hidden stories, all the neglected stories, all the bits of history that we're not included in, all yeah. those journeys that aren't told. So I became really passionate about refinding those.
0: And were you academic at school?
1: I was a bit of a worker. I was, I was, yeah, but again, that was... It was the stuff I loved...
0: So you threw yourself into the stuff that you were passionate about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was terrible at maths and terrible at science. So, you know, all plans for me to be a brain surgeon were quickly abandoned. Um, But I was really, really good at English and and had a facility for languages. And as it happened, sadly, I had had an English teacher who was actually quite openly racist. No (laughs) way. Yeah, yeah. We had this discussion about immigration in the class. This was, you know, really at the time of the National Front were very... Marching all over the place and everywhere, and I thought well, that's quite interesting. We're having a discussion about immigration. This is good. We should do this in English lessons. And then she bookended it by, "Yes, well, I think we should send them all home anyway." Turn to page. She did it. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was the I was one of three girls of colour in my girls' school. So that was three. That was meant for me. And I thought, right. I am a kid and you're a teacher, so I don't have a lot of power here. But I am going to shame you by being so good at English that it will stick in your throat every time you give me an A.
0: So I did that. You can't not ignore. You can't not ignore <laughs> this.
1: Yeah. So it was fired by something. Um, but I genuinely loved it, and I, because my parents were, you know, so liberal and, and, and supportive and loving. Probably because, you know, they, they eloped themselves. They were a sort of very romantic. Backstory of different religions, got married, so I think they understood. They had rebels' hearts, really. So when I, it seemed, and it looked like I was artistic, they, unlike many of my other friends who had the same leanings, they supported me. Oh, did they? Yeah, because they, they had realised a very wise thing. If you're passionate about something, you'll work at it.
0: And you'll work hard. And you'll, and, and you'll be happy. And
1: you'll be happy.
0: Because it let's went, not remember yes. that, please. And it won't feel like work. Exa- yeah.
1: Like me and you now. This doesn't I mean, every time I get a job, it's like, am I getting, really getting paid for this? This isn't work. This is who I am. This because is... I
0: was, I was talking before to somebody, and we were going, wait a minute. We used to do this as a hobby, <laughs> or just to mess about for free. For free. I know. And now we're getting paid for it oh you know sometimes you have to stop and go fucking hell i'm very lucky to do what i do yeah yeah
1: and and who would have thought that you know i could make a living from it but uh, so importantly i got that love and support early on yeah
0: which which meant all means the absolute world it really does you could have had a set of parents who went that's all very well and good but you need to do this because this is the right and, yes. and in inverted commas, proper mm-hmm. thing to do.
1: And I had a lot of other Asian friends that that happened to. In fact, the majority of them, you know, great if you want to be a doctor or do pharmacy or do law or do the respectable professions, but um, there were a few of them that didn't, and there was just no concept of anyone from our community at that time. I was going to say, at that time. Yeah, making something artistic your, your career. I mean, who do we have? There were no role models there was, other than Bollywood stars. There was no one in this country we could point to and go, well, they've done it, they're doing it, so maybe it's possible for me. I was going to
0: say, was there anybody that you inspired you and looked, you looked up to at that time? There probably wasn't, was there?
1: I can't, I can't really think of certainly any Asian women. I mean, there was, there was, a, there was a show called Junior Showtime. So if you remember that, it's really old. And it was a sort of kids' talent show. And it was presented by a really young, beautiful Asian woman called Aisha. Never forgotten her. She was the only one I ever saw. And her sidekick was Fred the Dog, who was a puppet. Right. Which, in my eyes, this was the best job in the world. To be <laughs> to be next to Fred the Puppet would be my dream. <laughs> yeah. um, and she was there. But then other than that, it was, you know, it was the odd token, funny, head waggly, let's laugh at the accent sort of walk on part or people blacked up. Um, And I think most of my inspiration probably came from black actors in Hollywood because and black writers, because it seemed to me that in terms of trying to find self-expression, as a community, a new community, not that they've been there hundreds of years, but there was no equivalent I could look to in India because they were people in their own culture and they were doing their own thing. But to see the struggle for artistic expression reflected in what the black activists and writers and actors were doing in America was, I think, more... Resonated more with me than anything that was happening. And
0: also they were standing up and getting their voices heard.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) I feel like I've talked really fast and too much.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I don't think you talk really fast or too much. Sorry, I was just stopping and I was just thinking about that time and Mm. the inspiration that you did or didn't have.
1: It's so true. If you can see it, you can be it. It is so true.
0: You did very well in your exams. I'm, going to say. <laughs> I'm not a, a mind reader, but oh, um, I'm a
1: good girl. I am. I was a good girl. I, d- I, I did work really hard. I had something to prove. Yeah, but you there know, was
0: obviously a fight in Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I wanted to see what was beyond the park.
0: And what was <laughs> the plan beyond the path? Did you have one, or did you feel that you wanted to to get out of where you were? to go to get somewhere bigger?
1: Yeah, I think that was quite strong. Not that I didn't love it, but I knew this wasn't... The world was much bigger than this.
0: And also it's probably the right thing for you at that time, but you're growing and...
1: Yeah. So I did English and Drama at Manchester, which was a
0: fantastic course, Manchester Uni. And How that... did you find that? Like... You, had you been to Manchester before? Only for the interview. Tell me your first <laughs> thoughts of, of Manchester.
1: <laughs> well, I was a bit... I was in culture shock, actually, I think, for probably the first year because I was just 18. I obviously didn't do a gap year because we didn't do that. Straight in. Straight in. Um, And I was from... By that point, my mum and dad had moved to the bustling metropolis of Walsall, so I wasn't a small village girl anymore, I was a small town girl. And I was suddenly in this this department, which was uh, really seemed to me full of sophisticates, People that had gap years, and we doing things like, "Oh, I've just been studying puppetry in Poland. It was really wonderful." <laughs> oh, great! Uh,
0: just let me sorry. Yeah. You, you, I know you. Do, do you revert back to that accent sometimes? <laughs> How strong was your yeah. accent at the time? It
1: was quite like this. Yeah. In fact, so much so that when I told people I was from Walsall, they went, oh, my God, you're a Polish Indian. That's really exotic. <laughs> no, no, not not Walsall. Walsall. <laughs> and then they lost interest. Um, so I was I was really I, I did stick out. I just looked like a bit of a numpty. I sort of wore, you know, the wrong trainers and the wrong jumpers and I had the wrong accents and. Just, you know, a bit like a puppy, let loose off the lead the first time, bumping into things, not really knowing where I was.
0: In this big city. In
1: this big city, but just bursting with joy that here I was, <gasps> reading books and reading plays yeah. and putting on plays. And... Just
0: feeding, feeding, yeah, feeding. Yeah, and
1: I was so hungry and it was so joyful. So the socially, not great for me because I just wasn't equipped that way.
0: What way making friends or
1: No, I made loads of friends, there were brilliant people there. But you know, i you know, I didn't have boyfriends and I wasn't partying and and drugging and doing any of that, but just because I was a bit green, hadn't discovered any of that still at eighteen. I know that sounds amazing, but that did happen. Mm -hmm. But also I was so in love with the work. I actually would rather go and do the TIE show than you know, stay up till five o'clock and get wasted. Of course some people were doing both and Probably that's what I should have done.
0: <laughs> I think I think you're doing all right. I think you chose the right path at the moment. But, um, but, for,
1: but for me, I think there was a part of me that also thought, I might never get to do this again. This might be the only time. I'm feeling quite emotional when I'm talking about it. It might be the only time. You know, I didn't know if I'd ever make a living from it. Yeah. But it just felt so joyful to be allowed to do it. And so I grabbed every moment. Um, and I met amazing people. And the, the thing that... Manchester had was, um, at that point, was something called the Stephen Joseph Studio, which was our studio. And studio night was... uh, Monday night was studio night. And you could be in a play every week if you wanted. It was our space. There was a lighting board. There was everything... Whoever wants to book it, book it, put on whatever you want. And that, for me, was the thing that made the course brilliant, much beyond the academics, was that that's where we all cut our teeth. And we did some shit stuff, mainly shit stuff. And we did some brilliant stuff, but the point was that the space was there. And how do you know you can write unless you go, I'm going to try and write that? How do you know you can act? How do you know you can light or direct? Yeah, That's what education should be about. Yeah, Cut your teeth and try it, because you'll find something that you fall in love with, and you go, this
0: is it. This is what I want to do. Because you can't be good at everything. Of course Nobody you can Nobody
1: is. Yeah. And that's what that course gave me. So by the end of the four years, because it's a weird one, you come out with two full degrees, you do two degrees at the same time. Um, I, w- I just, you know, played everything and done everything. But I didn't think that would ever translate to a job in the real world because I didn't see anybody like me out there doing it. And I thought, well... You know, what, what am I gonna do?
0: Did that knock your self belief in your talent or your creativity because you didn't see anybody like you
1: It just It's such a closed shop, isn't it? And I I think a lot of a lot of kids from working class backgrounds feel that whatever race you're from. Yeah. Um and a lot of middle-class kids who maybe don't know anybody in the profession. I don't know, maybe it's different. But certainly, if you don't... If you have no in... And remember, I was someone that had only ever seen two theatre plays in my life before I actually went to do it at university. Um, you just think, well, I, how do you do that? Where do you start? Do I write to the BBC? Send them a, a really polite letter with a picture of me in the back garden going... I was really quite like to act one day. I mean, no, because I wasn't at drama school. Of course, I knew people that were going on to drama school, so I had a little bit more of an idea at the end of the four years at Manchester, but none of them looked like me. I was the only woman of colour in the department anyway. In fact, in the whole of the arts department, I think.
0: God, that's crazy. It's astonishing, isn't yeah. it?
1: I don't remember anybody else. Um, and so you think, well, I know you'll do fine, But your path is never going to be the same as my path. No. I just know that it isn't. There's no point me comparing myself to you. Our careers are never going to be the same. The opportunities we get, the parts we're offered, are never going to be the same. So where is mine?
0: And did you feel or make a decision then that if the opportunity isn't there, then you're going to create an opportunity for yourself, or did that come later?
1: Well... Now, I suppose this is where luck comes in and everybody talks about, you know, the big break. I did, I did get a really big one. So it was coming to the end of my four years. I had an MA place booked at Leeds Uni to do drama and psychotherapy. Right. Because I thought, I'm going to do the sensible thing. I don't think I'll ever get work as an actress and a writer. This was a really nice hobby. Yeah. <laughs> and I know I'm really in love with it, but I'm not sure what's going to happen if I go out there. But I think I'm... I could really work with children and I'd love to use the drama to work with children with learning difficulties. That's what the course was. And then I had a PGCE place booked after that so I could work in schools and with young people. So, honestly, my life was really very mapped out.
0: God, that's a real plan. You really thought about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm an immigrant kid. Of course I had a plan. (laughs) I'm talking about Plan B. We have Plan C, D and E. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, I did this total conflict between... And I've had it all my life. And, in fact, you know, all... All my Indian friends, Indian female friends have this continual war between duty and desire all the time, all the time. Um, I'm, I'm sure, I don't see why other people wouldn't have it too. It depends on how you're brought up, but certainly it was very strong in me. There was the sensible path, not worrying my parents, even though they've shown such faith in me, but, you know, how feasible is this? And this pull in me that was, you know, now I look back, I was... Stamping on it was like I was squashing my soul like a spring into this teeny little box just to go, it's okay. You know, you can be happy this other way. You can be happy. This was really nice, but just be realistic. So, this constant conversation with myself. So, you know, got the plan B, C, and D. And um, our university all um, used to enter shows for the National Student Drama Festival every year,
0: which the, is a f- that you'd penned. No?
1: Well, I were... So I'll go backwards. So, right. I uh, as my swan song to acting, as I thought it was, <laughs> <laughs> with my friend Jackie Shapiro, who was a writer, we developed a one-woman show called One of Us, which was basically me uh, playing 15 different characters about this uh, Midland... Indian girl who's run away from home to become an actress right. and it's all set at her first audition and she plays all the different characters um including her mom and you know a boyfriend and a dad and um and she she comes in on roller skates with a hat on her head with a prawn on top because she works in this restaurant called prawn fantasy <laughs> in the bull ring <laughs> it's a cracker anyway so um and it was like it was just like I vomited all this stuff that i have been holding in about how I felt about acting, about my life and about... And, of course, this, this central character was me sort of auditioning for this piece and realising she's given up all this and what she's been asked to do in this piece is so demeaning. And she thinks, is this what I've given up my family for. I've run away to do this shit, (laughs) to be the third woman behind Ben Kingsley in the next Raj epic. Is that what I've I've given up my whole community for? (laughs) So I do this as a one-off performance, you know, at the studio, our studio. And then I'm sort of overwhelmed by... I'll never forget anyone, my dearest friend's called Tony Johnson, who uh, still great friends with, who went on to become an amazing drama teacher, just came out afterwards and held me and was sort of crying. He said, I never knew you felt like this. I never knew this was all inside you and I've known you for four years. And I went, no, oh, that's, that's why plays are pretty terrific, aren't they, sometimes? They do that stuff. So this play got brought forward with the National Student Drama Festival. It got chosen... It went to the festival itself. It won some prizes. It got chosen to go to Edinburgh. And, two we- and won some prizes there. Right. And literally two weeks before I was due to take up my MA place, a director from the Royal Court <laughs> found me in Edinburgh and said, I'm doing a play with joint stock. It's a year's contract and so I want you to be in it. No way. And I ran away.
0: So you did it? You did. I ran you away did from my
1: sensible life wow. and I joined the circus. <laughs> And that's what happened. And I look back and I go, wow, that was, that was someone in the universe giving me a right old kick up the arse and going, do not be stupid. Yeah, You're 22. If you can't take risks now, when right. are you ever going to exactly. be? Be brave. Be brave as a voice in your head. Be brave. What have you got to lose? Nothing. So no one's done it before. So what? You could be the first. Do it. Yeah. And then somebody just handed... It's like... And then, of course, you know unpicking that but I created the work yeah so it seems to me like acting is all about that mixture of hard work lots of sweat and luck yeah but you know be ready for the opportunity but do as much as you can to create it and being proactive and I had to be proactive because who was going to write parts for me like me exactly
0: you can't sit around no. no one can sit around and wait no but at that time you yeah. you couldn't afford to do no. that. But how fantastic that you put that down and you... It was therapy to get spew <laughs> all that out I know. On if you hadn't have done that.
1: And I didn't know if anyone would get it. I don't know if anyone will find it funny the way I did because I spent my childhood giggling behind my hand going, is anyone else finding this really hilarious that, you know, those relatives over there um, are trying to speak, you know, like they're not Indian and they think it's posh? Is anyone laughing about the conversations people are having over there about we will find the best pharmacist for you? You don't worry. (laughs) Has anyone else got suitcases on top of their wardrobe like my parents because they're thinking, "Not pal's going to chuck us out tomorrow? Is "Is it just me? Hi. And I felt like the sort of mad voice in the wilderness. And then suddenly you put this stuff down and you go, no, I'm not mad. And people get this because, you know, we we all share humanity. We all understand the universal stories. Yeah. And that's such a discovery.
0: And do you think (laughs) by doing that, that was a start for you to share your experiences and create a, a wider set of work?
1: Yes, I suppose so. I just, you know, when you feel invisible, as I did out there, You have this burning desire to say we are here and we matter. Yeah. And the the stories I hear my relatives saying in the comfort of their sitting room, they matter. What brought them here matters. Our history matters. I don't want to be a footnote. I don't want people to forget we were here. So I feel like it's almost like I feel like I need to record those stories. Otherwise people... I, also, I already feel that now with my parents' generation. They're dying off one by one, and I think of all the stories that have died with them, and I'm sad. Yeah. And I feel that about everyone's old people, actually. You know, we could all sit, all of you listening, could sit with your grandparents, and you could have reams of films and plays coming out of their mouths that nobody's asked them about.
0: Because those stories want to be told. They want to be it's told. It's just no-one's asking the right questions. Ask the right
1: questions. And, and also finding how healing... Stories were that through the stories we share our humanity, and that we begin to think about the things that we have in common, not the things that makes us different. I think that's why we're all artists. That's why we do what we do.
0: And there's connections,
1: yeah, through those
0: it, stories. Yeah, even if it's just one small thing, could mean the world.
1: And suddenly we we're in each other's shoes. Yeah,
0: oh, I get it now. I get, I get it. it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: When was there a time? Because you say you, you know you felt invisible, mm. was there a time when there was a change that you didn't feel invisible or you didn't feel uh, alone, even though you weren't lonely I'd hope yeah um
1: you're never lonely with Indian parents there <laughs> never leave you a bloody Never, <laughs> <laughs> believe me um. Yeah, well, I think the minute I got to London and I suddenly found this whole... I found my tribe, like do. Oh,
0: I'm sorry, I need to ask you a question before yes. we move on. Did your mum and dad see that you do that one woman? Yes. What, would, what was their reaction?
1: I th- I, certainly partly partly surprised, but also, also this look on their face like, yeah, we thought she'd end up doing this. <laughs> um, oh, well, they loved it.
0: I loved it. How did you feel with knowing that they were in the audience for the first time?
1: I was quite. I thought, you know, this is my sort of love letter to you. You know, I hope you. You know, the reason I'm I'm I've got the confidence to
0: stand here is because you. You yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. So I had to ask that question <laughs> yeah, bef- yeah. before it slipped, and we moved on. And oh,
1: they've seen everything I've done. In fact, the, the best one was the Vagina Monologues, as you can imagine. <sighs> I did the monologues and um, I said, Of course, we come in, we come to everything. And I took my dad to one side and I said, Dad, I have to tell you, there's no interval. And we're talking about, you know, foo-foos. And um, you might find it a bit challenging. I'm just saying, you can't escape. And he said, Oh, give me the play, I'll read it. So he went off with his pipe and sat in the porch and sort of, I saw him puffing away and reading this. And he came back and he tossed it to me and he said, Nothing I don't know. <laughs> 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 so they came to see the vagina monologues. Very funny. Um,
0: So so going back to not feeling invisible or if there was a certain time where you... Oh, yeah.
1: So, you know, landing in London in the mid to late 80s, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, 84, 85. Mm. The GLC was up and running. London felt like a big free festival. You know, there was so much. Suddenly there was... The theatre suddenly were waking up to the fact that we were a multicultural country, a multicultural city. Yeah. And it felt like people were actually interested to hear the stories we might have. And so, you know, I, I became involved with the Asian Cooperative Theatre, the Black Cooperative Theatre. We were all talking to each other Tara Arts, the stuff that was going on at the Tom Allen Centre, um, the, the new comedy that was coming up there. Um, there was just this whole people like me, first generation, born of immigrant parents who were born and brought up in this country, country, felt British but had a whole legacy of another culture and had this absolutely unique voice and it was so exciting. So exciting. And suddenly, yeah, I wasn't the mad person in the corner talking to myself. I yeah. had shorthand with these people. They got me. Yeah, That is that is wonderful. And out of that came, goodness gracious me. Um, th- really? Well, that, that whole wave of this... this second generation finding their voice.
0: Cause I was going to ask about it because when you're growing up and there's no inspiration there, there's no, Oh, I, I could be mm-hmm. like them. I could be like her. Yeah. Even prior to good discretion, me there wasn't really any sort of comedy show or sketch show like that at all. Was there
1: not on mainstream television or radio? Yes. I mean, there were pockets of little
0: Asian comedians going on, uh, Did you, when you all got together, did you say, there's a market for this, we need to change this and we need to open this door?
1: It wasn't as conscious as that. Um, I had, I was um, one of the writers on The Real McCoy and Occasional Performer, which was Britain's first and still only, shamefully, black sketch show. Black me in the Afro-Caribbean and African. So I was very much a guest on there because, you know, they were very nice to let me in, frankly, but I knew Charlie Hansen, and I said, I've got all these characters, and I've got nowhere to put them, and I, I've written a bit of sketch comedy, so they very graciously let me be a, a guest performer on there, and of course, I wrote about the stuff that we could do together.
0: And that was groundbreaking at yeah, the time. it was.
1: It was groundbreaking, and they were, you know, a brilliant team. Um. And on that show was a, a young script editor called Anil Gupta and de Geer, as a performer, I was also brought in to do a couple of sketches with me. And, and we used to say, you know, this show is brilliant, but we are guests on it. And actually the stuff that we've got to say is really different. Yeah. And if this can work, maybe couldn't, you know something like, you know, an Asian sketch show should work. And what is that? We don't know. But an um, Anil had seen um, Sanjeev and Nissin Sawney performing on the comedy circuit as the Secret Asians and had been doing for some time. Nina yeah. Wadia had also been doing comedy. So he, in fact, put us together and went to John Plowman and, and said, well, we want to do something like The Real McCoy, but actually very specifically British Asian. Um, and that's sort of where it started. So it didn't start
0: in the theatre space? <laughs> All we had
1: well so John no John denies he ever said this. This is what could become one of those urban myths because when we went to him with the idea, he, he said, our Asians funny? And fuck <laughs> off and he said, did I he? never said that. I don't think he said it like that. So to be fair, John, I love you if you're listening. Um, but he did go, I don't know what I don't know what British Indian humour is and we said, Well I don't know if we know, but we can show you. And we can find out the stuff that we've been doing to other people like us, and they seem to find it funny. And so we all... We put on, basically, a show in Hammersmith at the Riverside and invited all our mates, and John, um, and a translator, obviously. (laughs) And we did all the characters and the sketches we'd been doing...
0: I right we've been slightly interrupted by people but please <laughs> we we did on. all the characters and sketches and stuff that we've mm.
1: been doing on all these little pockets and put on a show and it was a huge success and john said i get it um so first we were given the week ending slot right to do on um radio four i think at 10 o'clock at night it was the summer break Weekending was a very popular um, I remember the weekend. And yeah. Many many people yeah, yeah. started out from many weekend. Many people, and- cracking show, sort of a roundup of the news events, satirical. They used to have a summer break, and Radio Four. They didn't trust us with television, which was interesting. Right. They wouldn't put us straight on television, but they said, "You can have these six episodes for Radio Four, and let's see how you do." They didn't say, "Let's see how you do," but that was the inference. Yeah. So we do these six shows again. You know, just doing the stuff that made us laugh, the stuff that was. Very much from observation of our families and s- keeping our, you know, Pin- Punjabi or Hindi or whatever for when it was needed. So not really ever thinking we're going to do a show to tell tell white people about what brown people are like. Let's do that. <laughs> that was never it. It was it's funny. We think it's funny. Let's see if you think it's funny. If yeah. you don't, we've lost nothing because yeah. who knows who we are. Anyway. The minute that the BBC sat up and took attention, took attention of this show is because it became a roaring success. And that told them something really important for their, for their demographic. Asians weren't listening to Radio 4 at half past ten on a Friday night. This was Middle England. Yeah. And Middle England got it. And then they went, Aha! Maybe we can put this on television. Mm. And that's how we got to television. We still had to do a pilot. We still had to wait until that was greenlit. Then we got our first series. So it was not a quick process. We had to prove ourselves quite a few times. But the material was so fresh, I think, and so unapologetic. And we had nothing to lose. And actually, I wish I could be like that all the time. I think that's the thing we lose as we get on in our careers, is to remember that bravery... And sort of treat every job that you take on as, ''I've got nothing to lose. Nobody knows who I am. Let's just be brave.''
0: Do you feel less brave as you go on?
1: I think it's more difficult. I think it's much more difficult.
0: What, personally or within the industry?
1: Both, I think, yeah. Have
0: you seen change? Have I... Seen change within yourself, because you're creating stuff at the start and you're you're throwing yourself to wild abandonment. It doesn't matter who finds it funny. (laughs) We find it funny. This is great. I'm brave. And now, as you, we get on and we get older... Yeah. There's, I suppose I'm saying, are, do you find, find there's more obstacles?
1: Um, probably half of those are in your own head. Um, certainly, when you're unknown and fresh, people are kinder. When you're more known, people will judge you more. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's part and parcel of being in the public eye. Oh, you've got to take that, you know. You can't, it's not a profession for thin, thick, uh, thin skinned people. Um, but also, I guess, you're more aware of how the industry works. And therefore, when you write something horribly in your own head, you are thinking about where is this going to go? And how can I get this in? Yeah. What slot will this go into? Uh, rather than I'm just going to write this because this is the way I want to write it. Sadly, I know how the business how the business works now, and I sadly I've been proven right time and time again when I have- and it's not like I've stopped writing that stuff, but I generally pretty much know when it's going in that probably it's not going to get through because it doesn't tick this, that, and that
0: box. And do you find that difficult as a writer? Oh, just
1: infuriating. You know, the hardest bit is changing the narrative. I think when people think when we talk about diversity, we're we're just talking about how many brown or black faces can you see on screen. Now, if you go by that demographic, we're doing pretty well. If you count all the newscasters and the sports people and the this and the that, but it's not a numbers game. No. For me, it's about changing the narrative about how we're seen and the kind of stories that we're being seen in. If the only thing you have on your channel all year which features a substantial amount of Asians in it is about a paedophile ring and that is the only thing you're doing then what are you saying? Exactly It's those bigger questions I'm not saying don't do that story but I'm saying put it in context with others Um, and I think that's the hardest bit is the stories now a lot of us want to tell might not fit what other people think we should be telling and I don't know how you change that mindset other than keep plugging away
0: When you write a book, do you feel you have more freedom if you're writing, like, a novel? Yeah, yeah.
1: Undoubtedly, you do. Uh, It's such a civilised process, but it's so
0: lonely. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, that must be very difficult, because... when you wrote, "Goodness gracious me, were you all, did you all write together or did like you go off into groups and write sketches? Yeah, yeah. Or, I, don't, I don't know how that world works.
1: Yeah, we'd have a roundtable thing about what are the ideas floating around? That sounds good. that go away and write that. you write that. But yeah. it back. we edit each other's stuff Sort of have a general you know you'd have to fight for something. Sometimes Anna would think something shouldn't go in and we'd fight for it going on a minute. Really, this should go in because of this, isn't this, this? but yeah, generally it was fairly democratic.
0: So, um, And to go from something like that yeah. to being stuck in a...
1: Stuck in a room on a your own with your own head and a blank page, yeah.
0: No it, was it daunting to do that the first time?
1: It was, but it was also quite liberating because actually after... And you know, screenwriting is hard. But the joy of it is that it's collaborative. But you, should, you, know, you hope that you're collaborating with the right people. It's not like I don't love that bit of it. I do. And you accept that writing is rewriting and you have to kill your darlings and it will become the director's work when you hand it over unless you're very lucky and they want you around. Yeah. Get all that. Absolutely get all that. Um, so it's not like I don't love that bit of the process. I really do. But there did come a point where I thought I just you know, I'm finding getting the ideas I want to do out there so difficult because it's not fitting in with the general narrative of what they think I should be writing or presenting
0: to them. How do you think that can change? Uh, and, and there might not even be an answer to that yeah, question yeah. because it's a much, it's a much larger question than, than yes. what I've just said um, or what I've just asked. Yeah. Because if you've spent all that time creating something there,
1: yeah,
0: and it gets handed to whoever the gatekeepers over there, yeah, and they say yes, we like this, but X, Y, and Z has to go, and this has to change, and we have to. Well, what do you do there if you want it ceases to become your work Mm-mm. if you take on board all those notes and those boxes that have to be ticked? So, yeah, uh, I don't know.
1: It's it's a it's a really tricky one. I mean, if you're working with a director and a producer and a scripter, if you're lucky enough to have one, that you really trust. I'm happy to go with changes in progress. I really am, as long as I can argue my case and Mm. I know why we're doing what we're doing. I think... Otherwise, you're just not open to learning. You know, the director might have a brilliant idea that I really haven't thought of. The director might go, you don't need three of those scenes, I can do that in a shop. Brilliant, do it. Yeah. That's all part it of the If it moves process. the story Absolutely. on,
0: then things have to go. Absolutely. But you have,
1: part, you have to be part of the dialogue. And first, you have to get into the room and, and then get the idea that is a bit quirky on. I mean, all I can tell you is all the things I've done that I feel are successful would never have been commissioned if I'd gone in with a pitch. Right. How they started was from a root of, I really want to tell this story. The very first thing, you know, one of us, the one-woman show, no-one would have commissioned me to do that. No-one had seen, a, I suppose, a, I don't know if anyone had seen anything like that before. But it came from a desperation to tell the story. Now, that's what you have to remind yourself of, Yeah, I think, as you get on, when you're thinking, well, I'd love to get this on. Who would... What demographic does that suit? Is but yeah. just not for that? Yeah. There's a bit of me that's tempted to go, just write the story you want to write, because yeah. actually there must be a reason that all the ones I've done that with have been the ones that have got on and been remembered and, and had an effect. It
0: is important to stop and think. Mm. It's like what you said before. You were so brave then, and the the wiser we get, and yeah. the older we get, yes. the less brave we get.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I just want there to be, I want there to be really creative, really open discussions, because it feels like sometimes we're all shouting at each other through megaphones, and people are getting defensive.
0: And there's a lot of anger. <laughs> and there's a lot which of I anger. Don't f-
1: <sighs> and going the- back
0: to what we're saying about like being articulate and passionate yes. is is a much is m- it's much stronger yeah. than than pounding the fist and anger.
1: Absolutely. And actually, at, at the end of the day, we all want to tell the stories that are really going to resonate and yeah. mean something. But we can't start with being defensive. And when people feel their power is t- being taken away, they get very defensive. So you have to find that space where we actually are just going, look, dude, I know, you know you're know you sitting in that chair with the job that I could probably do just as well, but I ain't going to go there. Mm-hmm. I just want to really talk to you about... <laughs> let's, let's have a proper grown-up discussion yeah. about how we can move forwards. You are talking to a grown-up. We're all grown-ups. i got a backlog of stuff. I'm not a baby. So let's just drop all of that rhetoric and just go, what are we talking about here? And you can be open. It doesn't have to go further than this room, but we have to have those really, really deep discussions to effect change because the people that are holding on to the power are the ones that are the most difficult to reach and the most defensive.
0: Mirisyel, carry on telling your stories. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. That was beautiful.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having yeah. me. You're
0: bloody welcome. <laughs> and there we go. Another episode is done and what an absolutely beautiful episode to end. This week on, and what a week, bloody hell, I need a rest. I bet you do too. But I cannot thank you enough for joining us and being so supportive and talking about the podcast. Because without you, we wouldn't be an award-winning podcast. I know that, because you've got behind us from the start. Please follow us. You know we're on Twitter. At 2 Shot Pod, We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. If you want to get in touch. You're not on that. You can drop us an email. It's 2 shoppod at gmail.com. Oh my God. I've got this down. And also if you. Uh, you might think that now. We've won an award. Oh my God. There's loads of sponsors coming in. They just want. No. No one's coming. We're still doing this off our own back. And by the help of You digging in your pockets and helping us out every month. We're on patreon.com slash two shot pod. And remember, if you donate five dollars a month or more, I am gonna give you. Do you hear this? What's this? It's only the most beautiful limited edition two shot podcast logo enamel badge brought to us by our friends At One Stop Badges. Now they made them. They didn't give them to us free. We paid for them. But they are beautiful badge makers. So we go to the best. Because we want to give to the best. And that's you. Alright. If you want one. Let us know. We'll sort it. Until next week. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. And have fun. Alright. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the two-shot podcast i'm craig parkinson he's producer griff and we won a bloody award take care the two-shot podcast is presented by me craig parkinson recorded and produced by thomas griffin for splicing block our music our brilliant music is courtesy of then thickens cheers